Hello, I'm Brandon Lisi, your host for the Built on Strategy podcast, where we explore different strategies with leaders from all around the world. Today, my guest is Ms. Edelweiss Harrison, and she is the Vice President and Head of Strategy at Capstone Strategic, which is a mergers and acquisitions advisory firm. And I reached out to Edelweiss to kind of get some insights on what's going on in the world of mergers and acquisitions and some of the trends and uh, activities that she's seeing from her perspective as Head of Strategy. So thank you for coming on the show, Edelweiss. Thanks for having me, Brandon. So I like to start with the obvious question of who are you, right? Tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of share some of your background and the role that you're playing at Capstone Strategic. Sure. So I think one of the things that's always kind of uh, fun to give as as part of the context is I started off in uh, with undergraduate of languages and uh, found that I was interested in a lot of different things. Um, so touched on IT and uh, business and uh, Latin American studies. And I had one course in IT, and then I went into a career in IT. Uh, So I worked with KPMG for a number of years in the US and in New Zealand. And one of the things that I found coming back to the States about 10 years ago is I just really enjoy being a bridge builder. And uh, M&A is a really good connecting point for me. uh, I, I often describe what I do is uh, I help companies go f- who are interested in going from point A to point B, figure out what role M&A can play in that. If, if organic isn't going to get them all the way, then what is it that, uh, that we can do to help them? in in that uh, regard. So just a little bit about background uh, for Capstone. Capstone Strategic's been around uh, for 25 years and we're based in Northern Virginia. Our our ethos is really about helping organizations grow. And we've worked across uh, over a hundred different industries. So um, our, our philosophy is very much focused around being process driven not industry specific. And uh, we've seen results in in all kinds of industries. So from chemicals to uh, aerospace parts to uh, credit unions and so on. So a wide range of of industries. And uh, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll get into it further, but uh, Capstone is um, uh, has been a really great place to to have a career and the team, the delivery team reports into me and I enjoy working with my clients uh, in terms of developing their strategy. So one of the things that appealed to me when we were having our conversation about what we were going to talk about was the breadth of industry, right? Because some M&A firms are very, very focused in niche, right? Whether it's tech or healthcare or, or fintech or whatever it might be, and they, they stay within their sandbox and go really deep. And and you've been able to uh, focus more on a breadth. And I, you know that's something that I try to do with the Built on Strategy podcast, right? Is really cover a lot of different industries as opposed to being locked down on. Let's just talk about marketing or you know one particular vertical because I think you can learn from those. When you look at the, you know, you've you've been there for a while and you've had a chance to look at a lot of different industries. What are some of the big sort of technology trends, consumer trends, business trends that you've seen emerge and you think, you know, that are shaping M&A decision making, kind of, you know, causing the boardrooms to tremble or get excited 
about what they're going to have to do to position them, uh, you know, for the next five to 10 years? Sure. I think the big, uh, biggest picture is just to realize for a lot of people, they don't realize that uh, uh, regardless of whether the economy or the markets go up or down, deals still happen. And so thinking about M&A as a calibration tool, um, it's not an end in and of itself. You don't, uh, the, the first question any company should ask, whether you're buying or selling is what problem does this actually help me solve? Um, and so using M&A in my, in our view, M&A really should be part of the conversation all the time in terms of how you're growing your business, how you're managing your business. Do we need to invest in this new area? Can we go faster, smarter, um, more efficiently if we acquire or invest or partner? And I should just mention that from, from our perspective, when we talk about M&A, it's really external growth, which full, um, Covers the gamut of 100% acquisition to mergers and acquisition uh, to mergers, uh, minority investments, as well as strategic partnerships. So it's really about what is it outside the realm of organic growth that you could leverage. Um, and so we encourage companies to really use that as a tool to include that in your toolbox all the time. And so from a from a big picture perspective, in terms of looking forward five, 10 years from now, companies that are keeping an eye on the horizon and saying, okay, in our particular marketplace, these are some of the uh, trends that are likely, most likely to impact us. Um, one of the things that's pretty interesting about uh, the last 18 months and in, in working through the, the COVID um, dynamics has been that COVID didn't necessarily create new situations that impacted m and it just accelerated a lot of trends that were already happening. So for example, work from home. There have been a lot of deals in the work for, uh, in the tech space that supports work from home, right? So um, those things were already happening. Companies in that space were probably already keeping an eye on who are the partners, the particular uh targets that they would, uh, or prospects as we call them, that uh, that would be a good fit for them. And then they took um, took advantage of the opportunity when the when the conversation happened, um, when, when the market changed or accelerated, if you will, some of those trends. So I think a lot of companies are, are looking for opportunities that are going to help position them uh, for the future. Not everyone is comfortable um, taking on the risk of 100% acquisition when they're moving into a new space. Um, I know there are some companies that their risk profile is much lower. And so rather than go, yes, let's buy into this whole space, they'll say, could we make a, you know, 10, 20, 30% investment, uh, but with the option of completing the acquisition down the road, provided ABC criterias are, provided we see the market continuing to develop in the way that we anticipate. You know, is that a function of sort of people investing in the old go with what you know, right? You know, like in Atlanta, uh, using this as an example, a lot of people that made money in Atlanta made money in real estate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I compare that to, say, Houston, where a lot of money, you know, generationally has been made in the energy or, you know, the old patch in energy, right? whether you're in Dallas, it's 
all about, you know, who's your mama and Houston's who's your daddy, right? It, I mean, it's all about who, who family relationships. You know, if you're in the Highlands in Dallas, Texas area, right? Those people go back four or five generations of doing business with one another. In Atlanta, it's been hard for certain categories, you know, big in logistics. You know, obviously there's a lot of brands here and whatnot, but outside of fintech, which has a bigness, it's really hard for some entrepreneurs to get the investor attraction because they don't know the business and it's a little scarier for them. And when you talk about acquiring somebody, is that part of it is like, I don't even know if I know how to manage that business. I, I don't know what I don't know. Is it sort of the fear holding them back from making that? Uh or maybe are they concerned about how the companies might merge culturally? Because I see that a big, that's a big part of the failures that I've seen in MA is that cultures are just not ever going to fit. So, you know, what are some of the drivers for that? So I think that's a great question. One of the elements of uh, thinking through risk profiles is. There, there's a there are a variety of different scenarios, right? So in some cases, yes, it it if uh, the buyer is interested in ultimately um, managing and operating the entity that di- directly operating the entity that they're acquiring, then um, then that can be even more significant, right? In terms of okay, the the knowledge of the marketplace, etc. Generally speaking, our clients um, come to us because. They want to, they're stuck um, with uh, their organic strategies, don't, uh, aren't getting them where they want to. And so they're looking to, for ways to um, expand. And one of the things that we talk about is around identifying adjacencies. And so even if you want to, you know, go to the moon, um, don't start by by there, just like figure, break it down into smaller steps and what are kind of some incremental elements that can reduce the risk of taking on a significant uh, investment. So another very different scenario, though, is a, for example, some of our um, clients have uh, are, are uh, based in Asia and their risk profile is very different from, uh, say, a European company. And so it, it, you're absolutely right. It does touch on corporate strategy, uh, corporate cultures, how decisions are made, all of those things in terms of integration. Part of it does come down to how is it that they want to manage? If they just want the, you know, profit sent back to the mothership every, you know, whatever the frequency is, but they are hiring a strong team that's going to keep on running the operation. It won't necessarily matter as much the fact that they're, you know, a European company, as an example. So we have had um, uh, deals that we've negotiated for our clients in that scenario. And part of taking a smaller investment is to let the uh, Asian based company become more comfortable with where they're headed and how the operations are run uh, European, but ultimately they do want the whole piece as an example. Yeah, Having done work with global companies in the past, uh, both German and Japanese, Mm -hmm. I really can't imagine those two 
cultures working together very effectively. I mean, I've never been in the midst of all of that, and I'm sure it happens, you know, in, in different, uh, you know, vertical chains and whatnot. But, you know, there's enough of a clash with American culture sometimes in terms of risk and process and structure and whatnot that I can't uh, just layering on that German attitude versus the Japanese man, just to pick two seems like a, a challenge when and you, walk, when you be- walk with somebody i want to go back to the, the issue of organic growth mm-hmm. um because that's you know a lot of times we're involved in a deal because we're helping them figure out how to get more predictable scalable revenue right yeah. which ties back right because sometimes organic growth is really marketing driven growth or sales driven growth right uh and then there's a point where okay i can't get any more of the market or i need the political connections or the distribution connections of a bigger brand to 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 expand do you get involved in helping them kind of evaluate okay your organic strategy is broken you need to fix this first before you decide you need to acquire something, I um, mean, you've got to get involved in that if you see that there's really upside opportunity for people or they're not really, they have, maybe they have the wrong people in place to execute their organic strategy. Uh, is that part of the, the calculation or is it more of, we're just going to go acquire the, the knowledge and talent and resources that you need through acquisition to, to solve that problem? Our expertise is in the external growth piece. Um Occasionally, we come across situations where um, having an outside advisor point out things that they might be aware of, but nobody really want to talk wants to talk about it. Yeah. Um, the head of the sand. Might, <laughs> we might <laughs> bring it that. up. I came across a, a term year, uh, a few years ago. Kim Scott put out a, a book called uh, Radical Candor. And I think it's just a, a fantastic concept of a, a, a blending of in order to, to you care deeply about people and, and their businesses, but you also um, confront directly. And uh, the concept is, has, has uh, been a really good reference for me because I think a lot of times it, it's not a very comfortable position to tell a CEO that their performance falls short. Right. And um, I happen to be somebody that's a little bit more comfortable with direct confrontation. Um, I part of my my style, if you will, is getting to know people individually and personally so that they understand that I'm coming from a position where I really want them to succeed. But if they continue in the situation, the, you know, the way that they're going, there are going to be problems. So to your point, um, in terms of leadership, we don't make specifically as a rule. That's not really the area that we go into in terms of making specific leadership changes and so on. But there certainly have been situations where boards have hired us to do a strategy for growth and so on. And things have just bubbled up where it, it, it would be irresponsible for us not to mention it. So, yeah, you know, I mean, you, it, sometimes it, I think it helps just as an outsider firing something through the system, you know, mm-hmm. just to see what happens, right? How do you process change? Even if it's a small, you know, tactical kind of thing, if you can get them to, you know, have to collaborate across dis- different disciplines, you really do see, you know, you, you can identify problems pretty quickly. So I'm going to go back now again to the question about the trends, right? So you mentioned, you sort of touched on distributed workforces or what I call that, right? So one of the cool things about doing the podcast that I didn't anticipate 
when I started it. But now that I've you know kind of scheduled and recorded over you know nearly I think we're around 120 shows, you really see patterns emerge, right? And so one of the big sort of what I would characterize as the overarching pattern that's kind of grinding away in the background is artificial intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. How that's impacting uh, so many different companies and how people are trying to figure that out. Um, you know, another one really seems to be in the realm and they're tied. It's sort of, to me, it is almost a sub issue of dis- autonomous vehicles, right? Because th- those autonomous vehicles are going to be run by something, by intelligence. So there's a, there's a tie in there. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, energy, you know, kind of how it's stored, how it's delivered, how it's transferred. And that ties into both, right? Because of the computing power and the, ability yeah. to have the autonomous vehicle because you don't want to have to, you know, fill it up the gas tank. And then also see it's more localized the potential of something like 5G, right? Where that faster, bigger network, even though it's, you know, has some issues in terms of the numbers of towers and whatnot. I mean, are those the kinds of big things that you see where there's little ecosystems and you know, if I'm in an organic, you know, I'm in a place where I'm kind of stuck. Am I looking at that kind of stuff or am I looking more up and down my immediate supply chain? Um, or am I kind of looking at ways to augment the org chart or those kinds of, you know, bigger industry trends and whatnot, part of the calculus? They're definitely part of the calculus, I it, um, but not necessarily in an overt way. So, for example, um, we do uh, work with a lot of manufacturing companies. Let's say a manufacturing company knows that um, the process that, that uh, artificial intelligence is being incorporated throughout the value chain in different ways. It depends. It goes back to what is the business problem that they're particularly using MA to solve. And so if part of what they're trying to do is figure out the future, then then that will be part of what we look at. And so at the very beginning, um, one of the things I, uh, we uh, joke about is that we have a three three step process. We build the foundations, we build the relationships, and then we build the deals. And usually when people think about M&A, they only think about the quote unquote sexy part of closing deals. But there's a heck of a lot of work that goes into it at the beginning um, throughout understanding of, okay, what is it that we want to solve with this particular, by using this tool, what is it that we want to solve? So in the case of a manufacturing environment, um, if they're trying to uh, increase uh, efficiencies reduce the amount of steel that they're using, for example, with the, with the you know, challenges around tariffs and so on. Um, can they redesign their products? How can artificial intelligence help with that? Um, in the case of manufacturing parts for the automotive industry, that there are a lot of manufacturing companies that are facing quite a few challenges now. And so they're saying, okay, well, if we used to um, build parts for the vehicles that had com- uh, internal combustion engine, then how do we actually pivot to serve the market, automotive market of the future? Because it's not going to be the same as what it is today. And that will have repercussions in terms of the, um, uh, the, the, the whole value chain. And to touch on your last uh, po- illustration in terms of the 
energy storage, what's really interesting as well is a number of companies looking at the whole life of a particular entity. So for example, okay, well, we get this super high powered, either super capacitor, super, uh, uh, you know, a great battery, what's going to happen to it when it's done, right? How are you going to recycle that? What are you going to do with the um, potentially, uh, you know, challenging elements? <laughs> all the chromium and, the, and yes. everything else, all the, all the heavy metals that are in there, you know? Exactly. So, so, for example, they, that, that can be a piece of it is, um, I, I've been very impressed with how people have used acquisitions as a way of hiring talent. We, uh, have uh, seen the term aqua hire where they don't know what the prop, what the solution is yet, but they know that they need smart people to figure it out. And so, an established company, I'll give an example, which is Facebook acquired a, a startup in the UK when just before uh, about uh, six to 12 months before they launched their cryptocurrency Libra, they hire, uh, acquired basically a startup with a bunch of really, really smart people to do it because hiring that group of people one by one it was just, uh, it would have been quite difficult, but so they just acquired the startup and, uh, and yeah. they were in a really good position. Built on strategy is sponsored by TCICRM.com. If you're frustrated with the performance of your marketing CRM, call TCICRM's database expert to quickly diagnose the problem, optimize your systems and boost the productivity of your entire marketing and sales team. Move your business forward at TCICRM.com. You know, one of the, that really resonates with me from the perspective of just looking at it from the marketing perspective, right? Because we work with a lot of manufacturing companies as well. And one of the challenges for many manufacturing companies is that they don't have the marketing department for the future, right? They, They have the sales support department for the past. Uh, because they were always sales driven rather than marketing driven and COVID accelerated the reality of we do need to be able to play in a digital space, but it creates challenges for them because they don't really know how to evaluate, hire and manage the digital marketing team of the future. And just like, you don't know how to evaluate, hire and manage a cryptocurrency team is like, I, I don't know anything about it. And that creates some interesting dynamics in terms of where that person that comes in and, you, you know, a lot of ways you said you're hiring the company or you're acquiring, acquiring, I think is what you said, but the, the company, but a lot of ways you're really hiring the leader to me is the one that can guide it and, you know, continue to look for the talent to grow it and manage it and evaluate it and nurture it and mentor it. Um, you know, I think that's an understated part of that dynamic is bringing somebody in who can nurture the team and help grow the mm-hmm. team because you can hire a lot of smart people, but they're not always the best at building teams, you know, and, and that's yeah. an interesting thing that I would imagine plays out, especially the more technical you get, you know, they might be great athletes, but it doesn't mean you know, they're great coaches. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. I see that in marketing. No, I can see that as well in, in, in that world. Uh, yeah, so you- to- totally agree. I think it's really interesting how um, one of my other hats is I, I uh, 
lead a course for the American Management Association on disruptive innovation. And one of the things, uh, one of the frameworks we use is looking not just at competitive dynamics, so within your specific ecosystem, but what are the broader trends that could very well be impacting your business, if not immediately down the road. Um, it uh, we use a, a acronym called PESTL, so it's political, economic, social, technological, environmental, and legal. And I just I I, I always tell my uh, attendees I said this is a safe space. We are going to talk about taboo topics, um, i.e. the P word <laughs> and uh, so on. So I, I think it's it's very interesting to see how trends that are happening in a lot of different areas. I mean, who would have predicted that a, a sub-segment of social, which is health, would have had resulted in what we experienced last year, right? So it's very interesting to see how these things that, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm curious how it's going to play out is the impact on insurance over the coming years, right? It's just like, okay, well, how does, um, uh, how does liability play out depending on different uh, measures that are being taken. At some point, uh, this is a fairly litigious culture. At some point, people are going to, if things don't go according to plan, there are going to be, uh, you know, challenges. And so how does insurance play into this? And I think that uh, that ultimately all plays into how you build out your strategy. So building a team, um, you're absolutely right. It shouldn't be just smart people. It's complex. It's there are lots of different smart, right? So smart isn't just book smart. It's street wise. smart. You need, wise. Yeah, you, you need wise people. Absolutely. Wise. Smart and people wise, I think, because that's where I see some things where they fail is because the, the successful mm -hmm. ability to bring two teams together. I, you know, it's a marriage and you have to have wisdom, um, not just raw intelligence, because there's going to be times that you have to give and take. And, you know, if it's just a bunch of smart people, I think they're right all the time. They don't generally give. And um, I see that, you know, where there's a big breakdown. And, and also, if you're dealing with people on the other side, the acquirer, we have the money that gives you a certain ego perspective, right? Where, you know, instead of I'm in charge, it's like, well, no, let me put me myself below you. And, you know, like my, I, I've often said this on the podcast, right? Like I view my org chart as, as a tree and I'm the root ball, right? I, I, even though I'm one of the founders and CEO or uh, president, I, you know, I don't sit up at the top of the canopy. I, that's where the customers and, and team members are. And I think when you get into M&A, when people buy somebody, there's a sense of I'm in control and I think that's the wrong way of looking at it, but that's a philosophical question. Right? <laughs> so. Well, and that, and you're, you're a hundred percent right. So we, we, um, that's a big part of what the role that we play as mediators and advisors. Um, our philosophy is that every company is for sale for the right equation and dollars are never the only element of the equation. And so you have to understand both sides so that both sides you get to a very set of variables where you can have a deal. Um, and it's, it's not only, it's never ever been just because of the money. 
Yeah, I've often said uh, in the realm of the, the, some of the work we've done in the past and in, in M and A, but just in general. So you know, there's a science to gathering all this data to make the you know for the analysis. But at the end of the day, there's an art to making the decision, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really hard to calculate the artistic variables of personal happiness and self, you know, professional satisfaction and sense of accomplishment and being valued. You know, those are all really important soft things. But when you're dealing with acquisitions of a more creative nature, i.e., hey, I'm hiring cryptocurrency experts or whatever, that's all that stuff's an act of creation, right? It may not be design work, but they're designing something. It's all craft work. And, you know, you got to make the craftsman happy, um, yeah. you know, give them a sense of satisfaction in the work they're doing. It's not just about the money. And when yeah. it becomes about the money, I think that's and- where things go off the rails because every company is essentially a big extended family. You know, whether you like it or not, I I think it's um the the element of of figuring out the equation is one of the fun parts to me because you get to know people and so like w- yeah. what is for example legacy right that that uh, especially for privately held companies the maj- we work in the middle market and the majority of the companies that uh, are in that space are owned by family businesses or families uh, individuals and. Legacy means different things to different people. So in some, for some folks, it's okay. I want to be able to put a plaque with my family name on some building or something, right? For other people, it's I want to be able to um, say that we donated X millions um, to a particular cause. For others, it's I want to be well-respected because uh, in my community, we are the primary employer and we want to make sure that that I can, you know, that the owner can still go to the grocery store to their club and, you know, hold their head up high because people are still employed and have uh, good opportunities in their career. So, it's that's part of the journey is figuring out what does legacy mean for especially for um and in some for some families it's like well we don't want to sell the whole business just yet um we'd like to keep us a small stake and help to continue to grow it and we'll exit further down the road uh or exit completely so it's uh that that's something i really enjoy is having those conversations and seeing you know uh what what is important to you so let's start. I kind of I want to get in a little bit into sort of what the experience is like. You know, kind of let's walk through the deal and a process. And I know it varies every single time. Kind of how do deals end up on your desk, right? Or what initiates you, right? Like, okay, well, here's an example of how I get involved or how we get involved. And then let's just walk through the process so people have an idea of what to expect if they want to engage you. Mm-hmm. So the majority of our deals are buy side. That means that our clients um, approach us because they want to buy a company. And that means that we work with our clients to help define, first of all, are they clear about which markets they want to go into? Um, one engagement we had, uh, they were looking at 10 different countries in South America. They wanted to say, okay, which country should we enter? And then first, that was the gating question. And second is which com- which companies within those countries would be the best opportunities for them. And so we came alongside, we first benchmarked the 10 countries, 
And then within those uh, countries, we helped uh, identify a list of opportunities. Now, typically within Capstone, we um, look at 100 opportunities on average to do a deal. Um, and what by, by that, what we mean is we help our clients deploy resources effectively. So you don't want to do a deep dive on 100 companies. That's just not practical. Um, it's not a good use of resources, especially if you can identify certain level of criteria that, you know, if it has ABC characteristics, we just know they're not going to be a fit. So yeah, let's you got to have some filters. You know, Absolutely. You know, yep. So size, location, product mix, whatever it might be, you know, exactly. you, you got to have some filters. Yep. A hundred percent. So we take them through that process. A lot of our, once we get to reaching out to specific companies, the prospect companies that uh, were open, it's uh, I, I often use the illustration. It's a little bit like a corporate courtship. I'm literally calling a business owner and saying, would you be interested in talking about selling your business? Most of the time, most of the time, our the clients we have or the companies we approach are not for sale. What question? I want to go back to the, the filtering process. Sure. When someone comes to you, let's say, hey, I come to you and I want to buy another marketing company. Mm -hmm. Do I typically have the, you know, do you find that the people that are in that buy mode have all the filters thought through? Or is that one of those things where... Yeah, we need to rethink these filters a little bit and kind of actually defining what we're going is, is it a more collaborative process or is it a little bit more clear cut uh, when someone's walking in the door what they're looking for? Yeah, great question. I think it's definitely a collaborative process. Um, we are never the industry experts. Our clients are. They know their industry a heck, you know, much better than we do. And um but they've often not had to answer the questions in the way that we ask them. And so that creates a new way of thinking about, okay, let's not, we have a list of what we call usual suspects. It's like, okay, in all the conversations, people know they have their usual suspects of if I were to acquire somebody, these are the three people or three companies I would go out after. And then part of our journey with the client is to say, okay, what, what is it about those three that makes them so attractive to you? And can we find any others? Oftentimes we find many, many others that are, if not equal, better fits um, than their original usual suspects list. It just happens to be that they were very familiar with those. So yes, absolutely. We go, go through that process together. Sorry to interrupt. I just, no, that's that fine. just seemed like a, you know, kind of an important aspect in terms of where you, to me, where you would add a lot of value is opening up the playing field, right? It's like, well, there's a lot of people, again, it goes back to the whole go with what you know. I know a lot about manufacturing and marketing, but not companies in the Southeast, especially around Atlanta, but I don't have much insight into the Midwest or, you know, what's going on in California just because it's, you know, on the other side of the moon for me, so to speak. So yeah. I, I was just curious about that. I, well, I think it's interesting because sometimes um, uh, the, because of a uh, high degree of fa familiarity with a particular area, we have had occasionally a deal that happens in a next door county or state that our client coming into the program really had no idea that they existed. They were so focused on the ones that they did know, they didn't realize there were others outside. So you can't see the forest for the trees, right? I mean, yes, that's, it's, exactly. it's the classic cliche, but that's really what it is. And that's part of what you're doing, I think, is helping them see the forest. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah. So the process from from the point that we approach uh, an owner is uh, I've spent a lot of time, even in the last few weeks, just having meetings, talking, bringing people together. So my clients and the business owners of the companies that they're interested in. And we're not asking the question. um, I I joke that I, I put the A or the M word on the table early on so they don't feel like they got had a gotcha conversation. Um, we say, look, our client is interested in mergers and acquisitions, either acquiring you or, you know, whatever the other options are. But we don't, we're not assuming that that's necessarily where we're going to end up. So the, the purpose of the early conversations is let's get together, have a conversation. What's important to you? Where do you see the markets going? What are challenges that you think we could help so, work together to solve? And from there, a number of different conversations can happen. Uh, one, one uh, meeting we had uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, it turned out that the pro- prospect that we approached was probably not going to be a good acquisition candidate, but um, was prepared to have uh, renegotiate a much better supplier agreement. And so it just it, it the conversation took a very different turn from what we were expecting, but it still was worthwhile having the conversation. So um, we we start off with okay, in the ideal scenario, we'll talk about acquiring company A. But in the exploratory conversations, we're, we're trying to see where there might be complementary uh, opportunities. And then from that point on, you're guiding them through the offer sheets and this is here's the valuation of the business and, you know, get into, OK, let's do the financial reviews and really kind of dig into these P&Ls and balance sheets and figure out what makes sense then help formulate the offer and try to get the deal done, right? That's sort yeah. of the block and tackling kinds of pieces of it. Yeah, exactly. It's and not easy. Is- I just glossed over it, but that's a hell of a <laughs> lot of work. And I, I've been part of that. For yeah. Sure. One of the things that's very interesting with privately held companies that are not for sale, it takes a lot of work to get them to the point where they're ready to sell. They're psychologically ready to sell. That doesn't mean that their financials or their operations are very uh, ready and organized for an outside party to take a look at them. So it's not uncommon for us to get financials that are kind of messy. And so they're, they have all kinds of, uh, ad backs and curious accounting areas. And it's not that it's illegal. It's just, uh, uh, messy. And so well, it's not ready to be plugged into the other accounting systems, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, I'll use my own firm, right? I mean, my business partner and I have perks, right? It comes from owning yeah. an S corporation for 29 years. And, you know, if someone were to acquire us or invest in us, I mean, it's like, wait a minute, guys, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, they would that, manage it. Those differently. things need to be accounted for differently, right? In terms yeah. of, you know, your expense accounts and, and yeah. bonuses and stuff like that that you take, right? Yeah. Um, so that makes sense. And I imagine COVID has probably created a whole lot of interesting challenges on the balance sheets in terms of trying to understand what the valuation of a business is historically or what it's going to be moving forward because of the impact of COVID on the market, the buyer behavior, the staffing, um, you know, and if it's a staffing business, right, or a technology oriented business, it's hard as hell to get good people. And if it's a supply chain driven kind of business, the disruptions in the supply chain probably make it hard to look, how are you gonna manage your margin? Because what's your margin gonna look like in six months or eight months or a year? 
Yeah, um, so we I, have I, a we have a great uh, certified valuation analyst on our team, and she really helps put the models together in terms of understanding and talking through with the business owners to talk about help us understand why your you know top line was this and uh, you know gross profit was that, etc. A big part of, I, I mean, a lot of, it, it's not uncommon for business owners to have um, a very different valuation expectation of, uh, of the worth of their company. Always uh, higher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Always higher than what someone wants to pay. You know. Right, right. And, um, but, but by the same token, that's where having a, a valuation done properly can be very helpful because one of the things that we've seen in the last 18 months is that some of our clients have had, you know, extraordinarily good years. It just depends on which industry. If others have seen their revenue drop down to zero. Now, even in the case of zero revenue, that doesn't mean that the company has zero value. And so that's a big part of having those conversations and saying, that that's a big part of why we recommend M&A always being part of your toolkit is, uh, you know, don't wait until a crisis, you know, have be proactive about uh, about understanding where your company value is and so on. So, um, yeah, but those those are interesting conversations. Well, Edelweiss, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast and kind of giving us a little insight into the world that you live in. Is there any last piece of advice you'd like to give uh, one of the many entrepreneurs that listen into the show or business leaders about M&A in terms of maybe some advice or perspective that you've had and as you've worked with so many different companies about how they need to start thinking about M&A and some of the possibilities because the market is, I think, very ripe right now. There's a lot of opportunity from what I see out there mm -hmm. for M&A activity. Absolutely. I think take care not to make assumptions. Don't assume that because of what you can see that you can predict what the other party would, how they would respond to your approach. B understand what value you bring to the table, what you have to offer any partner, whether you're taking an equity stake in them or simply doing a strategic agreement of some sort. Understand what your value proposition is and what you bring to the table and then have do your homework so that you understand what they might be able to bring and then have exploratory conversations. I think um, it's, uh, it's very helpful to have other people involved that understand um, the process that you can go through. But the, the, a lot of it is the starts with you as a business leader being realizing that this is a tool that you should consider um, as an opportunity for growth and for sustainability down the path. I think it's great so, insight. Thank you so great much advice. for having me, Brandon. Really enjoyed our conversation. Yes, ma'am. Likewise. We're definitely going to have you back on the podcast at another point. I appreciate that. Until next time, I'm Brandon Lacey, reminding you that a successful life, much like a successful business, is built on strategy. And if you need a better strategy to compete for customers or talent, contact me, Brandon Lacey, at builtonstrategy.com, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And finally, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast platform you prefer. Share it and recommend it to your friends. Take care.